Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from On Shammet Synagogue and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Bahar Mahukotai, Liberty or Release from Poverty, The Message of the Liberty Bell. Have you ever been to Philadelphia? Of course, uh, school trips and a few business trips and maybe one vacation. Um, yeah, I like Philadelphia. I love I love Philadelphia. I love looking at, you know, all of the Americana there. And I have to say that when I see the Liberty Bell, my heart skips a beat. It's kind of an amazing thing to, to see and to behold and to see those words proclaim liberty throughout the land and to the inhabitants thereof, you know, there on on the bell, on that cracked bell. Do you have that, do you have that sense when you look at it? Yeah, the bell is a powerful symbol. And um, the fact that it's cracked is also a great symbol because uh, liberty has never been uh, perfectly practiced here in this country, uh, or perhaps in any country, but we've certainly had our, our share of cracks and, and mistakes along the way. Yeah. You know, in Israel, in Jerusalem, there's a park, and it's a, basically a park dedicated to the United States, Liberty Park, and in there, there is a um, copy of the Liberty Bell. So I used to go on Shabbat and kind of look at it. I was always kind of amazed by it. But I suppose that in Israel, this whole idea of being that crack in the Liberty Bell also speaks about the challenge of democracy. I'm wondering how Israelis are thinking about that right now with all of the um, controversy regarding legislation and the Supreme Court. Liberty is a very hard, hard idea, not just a form of government, but the ideas that undergird liberty, I think, are just... uh, always changing and always hard to maintain. Oh, no question about it. Um, and it's an ongoing process because our concept of liberty changes and maybe our our expectations rise. I would hope that we uh, demand more of ourselves when it comes to creating and, um, and and sharing liberty that, you know, that our founding documents, which said they were meant for all, uh, didn't include all, obviously. So we're, we're still working on that. There's no question, but the... The fascinating piece that I think is often missed is that this verse is taken from the book of Leviticus, which just happens to be in the portion of Bahar, which is this week's portion. And funny how that worked out. I want to just underscore the context for the actual verse, because what it's talking about is the notion that every seven years, if we were farmers, and most people in that era were farmers, we would have to let our land lie fallow. It's called uh, Shemitah. It's the sabbatical year. So every seven years, you cannot plant or grow new crops. You have to let your land lie fallow. I suppose this is an ancient form of crop rotation, letting the land kind of uh, reinvigorate itself. Mm-hmm. But seven times seven the perfect seven, when seven is the covenantal number, it's a reminder that God is the creator of the world. God is the one who rests on the seventh day. In the 49th year, you will proclaim dror. Dror, in this case, isn't liberty as our founding fathers understood it based upon the reading of the King James Bible. Actually, the word means to release. So any debts that were owed in the 49th year, Debts that had been incurred 
land that had been seized, perhaps because of someone's inability to pay a debt that was part of a family-owned plot of land. All of this had to be returned. And so what you're looking at is a resetting of the economic dial. Another way to put it, it's breaking the cycle of poverty. And it's a really interesting idea about what is liberty really. It's not just political liberty, freedom to vote, freedom to observe, you know, to worship as you please, etc. But it's economic freedom. And I think that that is an idea that is so powerfully relevant today, and it's being missed. No question about it. I don't know if you've been reading any of the reviews or if you've picked up this new book by Matthew Desmond. It's called Poverty by America. And he makes the case that there's something overlooked and sort of fundamental in poverty in America. You can't blame this long-standing poverty, the fact that you know poverty persists in the wealthiest nation on earth. You can't blame it on a lack of government programs. There's something fundamentally baked into our our economic model that is allowing poverty to continue when we had the wherewithal, we certainly have the means to eliminate it. And what he's arguing is that it's a form of of exploitation. Our minimum wage is simply not sufficient. Uh, We're not valuing work enough. We're not respecting work enough that we have lots of people who are still profiting on the poor. I think that's his bottom line, that the system is built in a way so that you and I, because we have free checking accounts, are profiting because the banks are making their money and the banks are profiting, but because they charge onerous fees to people who can't maintain a steady balance for bouncing checks or for failing to maintain minimum um, levels in their accounts, the poor are paying so that you and I can have free checking accounts. And, And one example after another in that way, how our tax cuts we receive for being homeowners make it easy for us to reap the benefits of our economic system, but other people can't afford homes in the first place. So there's an exploitation at at work here that um, is keeping some of us from achieving economic stability. I I think that's fascinating. And what I was thinking about as you were talking was what's the starting point in America and what's the starting point in the Torah? And I think we're going to see that they're actually opposites. I think in America... The Jeffersonian notion of individualism is very much at work all the time. So it's the driver in capitalism, you know, the idea that I am a self-made man. By the sweat of my brow, I succeed. So it's really about me celebrating what I have and my own ingenuity. And it's a competitive market. You win or you lose. But it's kind of the playing field of America. I would suggest that the starting point in the Torah is the inverse of that idea. That's what this Yovel, the Jubilee year, is really underscoring, right? It's not about you. It's not about you as an individual. Whatever you have comes from God. And so what you think you own, you don't actually own. It's all kind of given to you by God. And you are in partnership with God when you work the land. But in the end of the day... You have to tithe, whether you want to or not. You have to tithe, give one-tenth of your crops to the temple because God commands it. And because you don't own the land, you have to give up that land that you may have acquired, or you have to forgive debts. You know, you are thinking on a communal level, very much like this book we're talking about. If you think on a communal level, what's my responsibility to God and to the community? It's very different than individualism based on capitalism. 
Oh, yeah, that's a great point. And I do think that there's so much generational wealth handed down in this country. And also, you know, you see it now with this debate over college admissions and legacy enrollments, you know, coming from money can go on for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can, you know, a family can gain can take advantage of those things. If, if we wipe the slate clean every 49 years and we all started on equal footing, it would be very interesting. And when it comes to the poor, you know, Martin Luther King used to say, don't talk to us about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps when you're talking to people who have never had boots. That this of that famous story on the airplane when someone talked about that. It does rankle me. It rankles me when I hear Jews talk about, make a comparison between how their parents or grandparents made it in America. Why can't people of color do the same thing? Now, I think that Everyone needs to take responsibility for their actions. We can't speak about ourselves as perpetual victims all the time. Jews can't do that. People of color can't do that. But at the same time, what I think many Jews miss is that in the 1920s, 1910, whenever Jews were coming to this country, their situation, while it was challenging, was much different than had they been a person of color living in this country. And the opportunities that they were able to garner over the years were much different. And that point seems to be missed, that we seem to be comfortable with people being in a cycle of poverty. And, well, that's good enough for them. It's something that we as Jews should be very careful about making comparisons. Because while I think, again, everyone has a responsibility to do what they can to further themselves, we also have to look at whether or not it's an even playing field. Oh, yeah, no question. When, when, when my grandparents got here in the 1910s, their families were instantly eligible to go to any school that they wanted because they were granted white status. And uh, there were lots of their neighbors, lots of people with darker skin who couldn't go to those same schools. And certainly in the South, it was even more pronounced. Yeah, no comparison. And, and that's why I love this idea. If you could truly reset the clocks every 49 years and uh, start from scratch and give everybody an even playing field. But, but can you? I mean, I guess, did it work? Oh, that's a great, that's such a great question. There is no evidence. It would have been nice to end 10 seconds ago. But <laughs> truth be told, we don't have any evidence that this was actually ever practiced successfully. And in fact, one of our great sages, Hillel, concocts something called the prose bowl, which is sort of a legal fiction. So that, because what had ended up happening was that people refused to give the poor loans. They wouldn't loan the money in the 45th year, 46th year, 47th year, because that that loan was going to have to be forgiven. So they simply just said, well, no loan. And people were starving in the streets, according to Hillel the Elder. And so because the law was blinding people and sort of kind of, they, he would use the verse, he, they're putting a stumbling block in front of the blind, you know, that, they, that these people weren't giving loans and creating havoc a moral havoc in the community, he created this um, document where you could actually take a loan and have it repaid after the fact. So I'm sorry to say that we, it has never been put into practice, actually. But at the same time, it is a concept that I think is at work. It should be in work 
um, both in our country and in other places, and in Israel for that matter. I think it's the more we the, what is our moral responsibility to one another? What do we need to do to even the playing field? And the reality is, is that it is our everyone's responsibility to ensure that whether it's you know the quality of schools or equal opportunities in the marketplace, all of that is is part of the moral responsibility. So if you go back to the Liberty Bell, if we look at it from an economic point of view, where we're saying proclaim release throughout the land, the bell is really cracked, not just in how our understanding of democracy, but also economic equity in our society. You know, at our, at our Passover Seder, one of the things we talked about was the prayer Dayenu. And I think it's relevant here because when we sing Dayenu, we often think about it as a statement of faith and not a question of God. If you would have, you know, given us a Torah but not taken us into the land of Israel, Dayenu would have been enough for us. Well, I'm not so sure about that. And so Dayenu could just as easily be a question mark. Mm. But what what I suggested to the people sitting at the Seder table is that what we often do is we will make a statement of what is not enough for us or what we don't feel is just for us. But when it comes to other people who are not like us, we are often guilty of saying, well, it's enough for them. They should be happy with what they have. Right. I mean, come on. They, you know, they look at, look at everything they're getting. They, they have to, and that goes back to your statement about pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps. And one of the things that we did at our Seder was we quoted from Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, mm-hmm. where he says, when people say wait, what it usually means is never. And so this idea of Dayenu is one that we have to think about for ourselves and, and speak out. But I would say that we should also be very careful about not saying what's enough for other people when we wouldn't accept it for ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Until um, everybody is uh, is equal, then the work has to continue because it's never enough. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi. May the bell of liberty ring again, and may the bell of release, where we are more aware of our joint peoplehood and also the fact that what we have, we need to share, be more heard in this land.